0: good afternoon and thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. And today we're going to be discussing uh, poverty and economic development in sub-Saharan Africa. But before we uh, get started with the program, I'm going to use uh, the opportunity to have all your attention to uh, shamelessly plug a couple of uh, publications and things that we do at the Cato Institute. Hopefully, you all are familiar with our organization. Um, If you're not, I recommend going to to cato.org. It's our website where you can learn all about what we do. Uh, we put all of our publications there. We also have all of our events, uh, video of our events, archived there. So if you like this event uh, and you want to watch it again or want to pass it along to, uh, to a friend or colleague, you're, uh, you're welcome to do so at our archived events uh, site on our, uh, on our webpage. Um, also want to, uh, want to tell you real briefly about Cato Today, which is a daily email newsletter that we send out every morning. That p- contains information about events like this one, so you won't miss a, uh, another Cato Hill briefing. It also contains uh, uh, updates about what's going on in our blog, uh, tells you about new publications, new op-eds, all the things that we're producing at the Cato Institute, and it's intended to be geared for, uh, for folks who work on Capitol Hill, so issues that are particularly relevant to, to Hill staffers. Um, additionally, I wanted to, to plug the, uh, the Cato Handbook for Policy. This is a publication we produce about every four years now, and what it's meant to do is give everybody who uh, works on the Hill a good overview of, uh, of libertarian Cato positions on uh, pretty much every issue that, that would be dealt with on, on Capitol Hill. So, Things ranging from tax and budget policy to, to foreign policy, entitlement reform, and pretty much all points in between. Um, we do provide that free of charge to, to Hill staffers, um, so if you'd like a copy, just let me know after the event, or uh, it's also available on our website, uh, again, cato.org, which I've probably now said 30 times, so hopefully you'll remember it. Um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, introduce our first speaker. Our first speaker is Rejoice Neguena. Uh He is uh, a Zimbabwe citizen and a leader to the opposition. I'm sorry, leader of the opposition to the brutal policies of President Mugabe. He uh, also organizes the Zimbabwean Coalition for Market and Liberal Solutions, and he's also a regular columnist for uh, the Cato's, uh, Cato Institute's New African Project, uh, which you can learn more about at AfricanLiberty.org. With that, I'll turn things over to rejoice.
1: Thank you very much, uh, uh, Arnold. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm sure that uh, most of you have heard a lot about Zimbabwe. you know, Misconceptions, misrep- misrepresentations, and sometimes facts, uh, sometimes uh, innuendos and uh, misunderstandings here and there. But I'm going to attempt, really, in in 15 to 20 minutes, just to to raise issues that perhaps might generate some kind of uh, interest in interrogating issues that have led to so much uh, uh, controversy uh, in terms of putting my country uh, on the map. Now, Zimbabwe really is a country that has assumed the status of the worst case scenario. Everything that has gone wrong, everything that can go wrong in, a, in an economy, in a country, has happened in Zimbabwe. You might ask, want to ask uh, what, where the problem is, where the, the contagion is. When individuals, when analysts, when uh, uh, you know, scholars talk about the complete breakdown of governance a complete breakdown of rule of law, Zimbabwe tends to emerge as an example. Now, what, what is the background to this, whole, uh, co- uh, to this whole contagion? I have listened carefully to, to pseudo pan Africanist, analyze the issue of the land reform program in Zimbabwe because everything seems to have been going on well until about 1999 where there was the debate on the land issue. Now, the Lancaster House Conference had made it very clear. It was very evident that uh, the issue of property rights was critical, was important in terms of driving the the, 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 the subject of democracy forward. But then, when uh, President uh, Robert Mugabe discovered that uh, his political authority was waning, it was important for him to find another alternative to prop up his his popularity. Now, we do understand, I do appreciate the the concerns that uh, Pan-Africanists have in terms of the transfer of land and transfer of ownership of property in Zimbabwe. But uh, while it is important that uh, there be some kind of justice, while it is critical that uh, there be some kind of uh, uh, equity in Land ownership, the questions that we kept asking ourselves was that why was it necessary for this transfer of, of property to be so vicious to be so pagan? Were there no instruments, were there no uh, clauses in our constitution that were, that were credible enough to make the transfer of ownership so humane now when then you interrogate the, 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 the evolution of uh, political opposition after 1999, then you begin to, to see a trend of, uh, of loss of governance, of loss of authority, and loss of continuity in the context of, uh, of constitutionalism. You know, Mugabe has been much heralded as a, as a liberator in Zimbabwe. We do understand that uh, he played a very big role in the liberation of the country. But what has gone wrong? What what has gone wrong in the model of of sanity? And uh, civic society then accepts that perhaps uh, the lack of understanding of constitutionalism has been a major cause of problems. Now, the Constitution of Zimbabwe, as it stands, is a very sane document but it is very difficult to understand why uh, such, a very, such a perfect document has turned out to produce such bad systems of governance. Maybe it is the way that we understand governance. I'm not too sure about that. But let's, let's focus slightly on the issue of the rule of law. What is it about the current status of the rule of law in Zimbabwe that has brought many questions? Why is it that uh, you know, in a constitutional democracy, Elections can produce such a, a, a debatable, a questionable result. Well, the movement, for the movement for democratic change is basically a social democratic party, but they do believe in the tenets of democracy. Now, if you then you know, interrogate their, their political ideology vis-à-vis PF, you will find that there is very little to, 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 to define the two by the way they interpret democracy. Now, President Mugabe says that uh, he is presiding over a democracy that has elections every five years. Now, then, what is then, what then is the problem with elections after five years? Where is the misunderstanding? Now, our argument is that uh, the current constitutional dispensation that we have in Zimbabwe has legitimized blunder in the sense that uh, Mugabe has surrounded himself with cronies who only promote policies that promote their own individual interests. So the question being, what is it that we as civic society can do to encourage an understanding of policies that promote the respect of property rights? Now, I'm not too sure whether or not uh, uh, it it is correct to to say that uh, uh, between 1980 and 1999, the situation in Zimbabwe was alright. There are a lot of things that happened in the intervening period between 1980 and 1999. For instance, I'll give you an, a, a good example. The multi crisis is a crisis that demanded absolute attention in terms of the violation of human rights, but it is during that time that Mugabe received most accolades. It is that time that Mugabe was recognized as a leading statesman in Africa, why is it that it is now that Mugabe's behavior has suddenly attracted prominent uh, attention in the world? When one can argue that between 1980 and 1999, there were plus or minus 25,000 people that uh, that lost their lives in Matabele and in the southwestern part of the country, one can then bring in the aspect of property rights. During that time, there were very few incidences where white commercial farmers were affected by insurgency. Because at, at that time, the government was portraying a very strong image, a very strong impression of a government that appreciates and understands the importance of, of proper rights. But after 1999, when there was a growth of a op- political opposition, when Mugabe felt that his, his, his political dominion is being channeled, ch- challenged, he had to create a uh, another political exit, another alternative to his waning popularity. And the land question was something that became a, a, a critical subject of debate. So most uh, you know, uh, uh, African uh, academics have been questioning the, 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 uh, the genuinity or the, the honesty of the land reform program vis-a-vis the desire for the indigenous African to own land. The argument has been that uh, it is very important that there be some kind of process of uh, of, uh, of of transfer, it is very important that those those individuals in the community in, in the indigenous African who did not possess land have access to land. But that's not where the problem is. The question is of the process. Is there no was there no methodology? Was there no process that was credit, cre- credible enough to transfer land from the white commercial farmer to the black uh, commercial farmer? was there no process that would uphold the integrity of humanity, the integrity of property rights. So this is why when then Mugabe goes around in the international community bending the, 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 the issue of being an anti, anti, a fight against imperialism, it sells very well to pseudo-Pan-Africanists because it makes, it makes sense that a, 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 a community that has been disadvantaged suddenly has access to land. The question is that of of processes. What has been the results of this collapse in governance? As we speak today, we might be aware of the facts that uh, Zimbabwe is experiencing one of the highest inflation in the world. 10 million percent inflation, 95 percent unemployment, a a complete collapse of infrastructure and health facilities. In a system where the government is in charge of every process, you expect that kind of depreciation. There is no separation of power in Zimbabwe. That we, we understand. The executive, the judiciary, and the legislature are inseparable, inseparable elements. So as a result, we, we, we find that uh, you know, the, the, the movement for democratic change has been having a huge problem in selling its case to the international community about the essence of the transfer of power between the blacks and the whites. Now, I think it mostly borders on the understanding of ideology. Uh, the, the, the issue of ideological perceptions in the, in the movement for democratic change has been something that has been a subject of debate but uh, my, my understanding is that uh, you know, the, the, the international community perhaps have been taking the issue of Zimbabwe from a, fi- from a frivolous and uh, a supervi- a superficial viewpoint now the, the, the question of, the, of, 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 of for instance sanctions in Zimbabwe it has been debated quite a lot at Africa unity level. It has been debated quite a lot at United Nations level. The citizens of Zimbabwe have a very strong understanding of the impact of sanctions, because most of them lived in, during the Rhodesian struggle. Now, while we, and, while we appreciate the critical disadvantage and the impact of sanctions, the common citizenry in Zimbabwe, our our wish is that uh, whenever the international community discusses the aspect of sanctions, the question whether or not sanctions affect the common person or not must not come into play. Sanctions are meant to influence policy positions of a government. And so far, as far as we are concerned, the position of civic society has been that uh, sanctions cannot play a role in transforming the, the behavior of the, of, the, of, the, of the government of Zimbabwe, even if they have got a history of effectiveness. So there is this frivolous misunderstanding about what it is that the, the, the citizens of Zimbabwe want in sanctions. And we have come to an understanding that perhaps the issue of sanctions, as much as it is an act of symbolism, It is important because it raises the profile of Zimbabwe onto onto the international stage. However, there are more important things that the international community can do to influence the processes. For instance, the common person in Zimbabwe is already suffering. Now, in an environment where inflation is 10 million percent, how does the common citizen have confidence in in the local monetary system? The biggest uh, you know, uh, uh, dollar bill that has been printed so far is the 100 do- billion dollar bill. Now a 100 uh, billion dollar bill cannot buy a bottle of coke. What it means that uh, as a medium of exchange, the common citizens have lost confidence in the local currency. Now civic society has been de- debating over and over again the possibility of dollarization of the economy. Now the use of the U.S. dollar is something that is so prevalent, but because our government is in a state of denial, it is very difficult for our government to accept that the, the United States dollar has become a very useful element of exchange. I'll give you a very good example. In order that you access petrol or a gas in Zimbabwe, you need to go and, and deposit in, uh, uh, American dollars in a local banking account. When you make that deposit, you then get coupons, and these are the coupons that you then take to a petrol company to get your petrol to be supplied, right? Now, when you want to buy a grocery in in Zimbabwe, it is no longer possible to go to a supermarket to buy your monthly grocery. Why? Because of the price control regulations. It means that the productive sector in the country has been completely uh, disadvantaged. There is virtually no industry that produces consumer goods in Zimbabwe. So, what you do if you have access to foreign currency, you simply cross the border and go and buy your groceries from Botswana or, or Mozambique or South Africa. But then the question is what is the use of local currency? Now, how do you then use local currency that is so worthless? How much of the $100 billion bills do, can you use to go and buy your monthly groceries? When I, for instance, take my car for, 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 for service, I am probably charged about $35 trillion. Now, these trillion dollars, since it is almost physically impossible to carry $30 trillion in a wheelbarrow, the Reserve Bank governor has created a very ingenious system, what he calls the RTGS system, the retail transfer uh, you know, uh, currency system. Now, I go to my garage to say, three days from now, I'll be bringing my car for, for service. They give me a quotation, and they say to me, "Rejoice, your car is going to cost $30 trillion. But because we know that you can't bring that in cash, if you can give us $500, that's all right, we're going to do business with you, which is obviously very difficult. So then I go to my bank between 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock in the morning. After queuing for about three hours, I then present my, my, my pro forma invoice from the garage, and then my bank does a transfer of $36 trillion to my garage. Then I take a copy of that RTGS, uh, you know, uh, invoice to my garage, and they say to me, we are only going to start processing your car once we are sure that your $36 trillion has been transferred into our account. So I wait wait a couple of days. And after about two or so days, I go back to my garage, and they say to me, "Mm, Mr. Nguyen, we appreciate that uh, your money has been transferred, but in the past two days, the cost of oil has gone up. So could you kindly give us a a kind of a top-up, perhaps another one trillion dollars? Right, so you can then understand that uh, by interrogating the case of Zimbabwe from a frivolous international diplomacy viewpoint, it gets to simplify the issues. But when you narrow them down to a day-to-day basis, how does a common villager survive from day-to-day? Where does a common villager get $200 $200 billion to go and buy a milli when the bank can only give you $100 billion. right? So the, the dimension then of the remittances that come from outside the country, as I said earlier on, that the 95% unemployment in Zimbabwe means that about 30 or 40% of the employable individuals are now either in, in South Africa or in, or in England or in the States. So these are the guys that make uh, foreign currency submissions to their relatives in, in Zimbabwe. Now, then the catch is that... Uh, you send your money to your grandmother in Zimbabwe, then she, is, she goes to the Western Union to collect her money. And for her to be able to access that money, she probably has to go to the queue at 3 o'clock a.m. in the morning. Why? Because there is a mile that is two, two kilometers long. And if she's lucky to be the, 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 to be in the first 50 category, she will probably get her money. If she's unfortunate, she has to keep going there for the, for the next coming two days. This is what life is about, real life in Zimbabwe. So, in summary, ladies and gentlemen, our crisis can be, can be put into, into, into two broad categories. The crisis of political governance, the lack of realization that it, it, it is critical for a government that claims to be a government that presides over a constitutional democracy to respect the rule of law. The inseparation of power between the executive, the judiciary, and the legislature, Mugabe he's got these supreme powers that make him control the entire system of civil life in Zimbabwe. He can promulgate any law that he wants. And of course finally the lack of a uh, of, of fiscal and monetary discipline. The central bank governor Dr uh, you know Gono has got supreme powers to to print money. At one time uh, the printing uh, company Fidelity Printers was churning out about uh, 35 trillion dollars every hour in order to sustain uh, the economy, so until such a, such a time when the central bank is given authority only to act within the, the, the respect of the, the constitutional requirements of the law to be the bank of last resort, I think the monetary crisis go, is going to persist persist and of course finally the issue of the current negotiations in Zimbabwe, there is a whiff of, uh, of anticipation and anxiety in the in the communities in Zimbabwe that at least for for the time being there are discussions between MDC and the ruling ZANU PF. But from a civic set of viewpoint, our major concern first of all is that Mugabe is not an honest broker. And secondly, civic society has been asking questions about the part, their participation in the process of negotiation. They strongly feel that uh, perhaps their, 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 their positions and their perspectives are being left out in political brokerage. But the, the, the biggest uh, you know, uh, belief so far is that uh, a transitional arrangement is the one that is ideal, because a government of national unity, that is Mugabe as part of the uh, of the model of, of governance, is is not being acceptable because of his history of, of bad governance. So, ladies ladies and gentlemen, I, I will be very free to uh, to to answer a few questions, but uh, so far as far as I'm concerned, I think you whatever impression you have of Zimbabwe, perhaps it's about forty to sixty percent correct, but the details perhaps might be lacking because the man on the ground has has to contend with 10 million uh, million percent inflation rate, and that is a very hard struggle to to keep up with in Zimbabwe. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Rejoice. I'll also note again that AfricanLiberty.org, we've published a number of uh, Rejoice's writings and just some really unbelievable stories. um, so I encourage you to check that out. Uh, also, a note: there are some t- seats over here and there. If you're uh, if you're standing in the back, feel free to, to sw- grab a seat here. Um, our next speaker is Marian Tupi. Uh, Marian works as a policy analyst at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where he studies in the political he studies the political economy of Central Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, he uh, prior to uh, joining the Cato Institute, he worked on the Council of Foreign Relations uh, Commission on Angola. And he also advised the CIA's and the uh, Department of State uh, efforts on, uh, in Central Europe. And with that, I'll turn things over to Martin. Thank you very much. Thanks to all of you for coming.
2: And uh, thank you, Rejoice, for, uh, those, uh, for those comments. I'm especially, I was especially interested to hear about day-to-day life, uh, lives of uh, people in Zimbabwe and how difficult it must be for you to uh, lead normal lives that we are so used to here in the West, I just want to sum up um, about the situation in Zimbabwe and then maybe put it in an African context and look at some of the policies that the United States pursues or may pursue in response to the crisis in, uh, in Zimbabwe and elsewhere on the African continent. So Zimbabwe, after 28 years of rule of Robert Mugabe, is a country with uh, millions of per- percent of, un- uh, of inflation, It is a place where uh, over 85 percent of the people are without jobs, where longevity has collapsed from uh, 56 years for women to 34 years, uh, and uh, similar collapse uh, for male population as well, which means that today Zimbabweans live the shortest lives of any people anywhere in the world. Uh, It is a place where uh, opposition uh, members are uh, killed, tortured, imprisoned without trial, it is simply a nightmare that uh, is, in my view, uh, rightly a concern of the global community. 99% of the victims of Robert Mugabe's rule are black Zimbabweans. And so when Robert Mugabe goes around the world claiming that this is really a racial issue, that this is Britain unhappy about the treatment of the Zimbabwean farmers, most of them, no, commercial farmers, most of whom uh, were white, That's simply a lie. Um, Most of the people who are suffering the consequences of his economic mismanagement and political repression are black people. And uh, we ought to, in my view, overcome uh, the questions of racial sensitivity and simply call Robert Mugabe's behavior for what it is unacceptable. Let me then put Zimbabwe into a bit of a uh, context with regard to what is happening in the rest of Africa. Over the past five years, a uh, bizarre, in my view, deal has emerged between African governments and governments in the West, uh, forwarded or advocated by uh, people like Jeffrey Sachs and other advocates of uh, tremendous increases in global foreign aid. Uh, The deal that was reached in 2005 at Glen Eagles summit uh, in, in Scotland seems something along these lines. In exchange for tens of billions of dollars of additional foreign aid to Africa, African governments promise that they will treat their own people slightly better and will pursue economic policies that may lead to higher economic growth. Quite irrespective of what the West does, It is obviously in the interest of African governments to do and to follow policies which reduce uh, poverty and uh, political repression. Unfortunately, it would appear that um, even, even that commitment has now been abrogated, as I will try to explain a little later. When Jeffrey Sachs and other proponents of greater foreign aid to Africa talk, when they advocate for more aid, they claim that this is based on tremendous improvements in governance or good government on the African continent. They claim, rightly, that Africa today has more democracies than at any point in its history, and that is true. But there is a difference between nominal democracies and real democracies. Most of the improvements in government, in my view, have been illusory. There are more elections being held, but the power remains in the hands of the incumbents. Results are cooked, in other words. In many cases, it is only the incumbent that is allowed to run for re-election, like in the case of Egypt or like in the case of Zimbabwe. In some cases, um, election results are rigged. So like in the case of Kenya, where the opposition leader, Raila Odinga actually won the election. But the government declared the incumbent a winner, and at a hastily put together inauguration ceremony, he was sworn in as the president of Kenya yet again. There is tremendous voter intimidation, like the one in Zimbabwe, and also tremendous vote bribery, like in Nigeria, where the political elites steal much of the wealth that flows to Nigeria from uh, oil sales to the United States and elsewhere, and then use those proceeds in order to purchase votes during the election time. Now, what about the African economy? Here, it would appear there is a hopeful sign. Over the past 40 years, African economies have stagnated. African incomes per capita between 1960 and 2005 were practically the same. Whilst the rest of the world surged ahead, Africa stayed stagnant. In some countries, incomes per capita in 2005 or 2006 were lower than they were in 1960. And yet, over the past four to five years, we have seen economic growth rates of about 5 to 6%, truly impressive. But I'm afraid the, the picture is slightly more complex. The countries that have experienced the highest growth rates in Africa are countries that are mineral resource rich. In other words, these are exporters of oil, or alternatively, exporters of uh, uh, materials such as zinc, copper, platinum, gold, diamonds, etc. Not only is there no sign of the revival of the manufacturing sector, of the agricultural sector, of the service sector, but even the money that flows into Africa in terms of sales of oil and other mineral resources uh, raises question about how that additional income is being distributed. For example... Equatorial Guinea is an oil-rich country in the Gulf of Guinea uh, that has the second-highest incomes per capita anywhere in Africa, after Seychelles. But it is a country that has been run by a dictator for the past 30 years, and it is obviously a highly unequal society. In other words, if you look at the World Bank Gini coefficient, it is one of the most unequal societies in the world, meaning the leader and the people around him get most of the spoils, very little of that of that bounty that comes from uh, high oil prices at the American petrol uh, gas gas stations actually reach the people on the ground. And the reason why the private sector is not thriving, the reason why you don't have a manufacturing sector to speak of, why you don't have uh, that much of a service industry in Africa, is because African economic policies are all wrong. The Economic Freedom of the World Report, which uh, the Fraser Institute in Canada and Cato Institute uh, here in D.C. co-published together, um, ranks countries according to their degree of economic freedom, all the way from Hong Kong at the very top to Zimbabwe at the very bottom with 130 countries in between. Most African countries are crowded at the very bottom of this this ranking system. Similarly, if you look at the Doing Business Report, which is published by, by the World Bank, the story is the same. African countries are at the very, very bottom of the pile. Now, why is the Doing Business Report very important? It's because the Doing Business Report, uh, one of the very few functions that the World Bank actually does that benefit the mankind, is um, that it, it measures the difficulty with which you do business in a country. It takes two days to open business in Australia. It takes 130 days to open business in Nigeria. It takes 80 days to solve a dispute over contract in Denmark, but it takes 1,600 days in uh, Nigeria or Angola. So that gives you a sense of how difficult it is for a private businessman to operate in some of these countries. Why would I want to go to a country where the tax system is incomprehensible? Well, here it's incomprehensible too, but uh, there are additional problems. For example, The private property rights in Africa are unprotected. It is impossible to fire or to hire anyone. Um, it uh, It is tremendously difficult to open and close businesses. In other words, you really have to be a person not averse to risk, to risk your savings in order to do business on the African continent. Zimbabwe, of course, exhibits all these problems except in extreme degrees. It is a country which holds elections, but opposition is not allowed to participate. It is a country which uh, still apparently gets uh, has some sort of an economy going on, but most of the money is really um, coming from a few, few mining operations, uh, namely uh, gold, platinum... And, and other minerals, minerals that, are being, that are being mined in Zimbabwe and which the government then uses in order to pay its police and its army to keep the people in check. So what I hope I have, uh, I have, I have explained or at least uh, what I try to explain was that most of the problems that uh, beset Africa have to do with bad government institutions and bad government policies pertaining to African economies they are internal to the regimes that run African states rather than external and what is needed in order for Africa to emerge from poverty is a commitment of the governing elites and this is not something that we are getting and I think that the African Union and the SADC treatment of Mugabe exemplifies this very well Here was an opportunity for Africa to unite and say no more to dictators. Here was an opportunity for Africa to say to Mugabe, you are an illegitimate leader of a country, you have lost the elections, you have stolen the election, you should go. Instead, the African Union produced a statement calling for further negotiations between uh, the opposition and the government, uh, completely ignoring... The, uh, the will of the, of the Zimbabwean people. and Of course, SADC and South Africa in particular um, have, been, have been tame as well. Now, of course, not all African countries are the same, by no means. Uh, I've talked about generalizations, and now let's look at some specifics of countries that are actually successful, because there are some. Recently at Cato, we had a forum called African Success Stories Botswana and Mauritius. And here are two of the richest countries um, in in Africa, in the top four. Most richest countries, Seychelles. Then you have the Equatorial Guinea, which presumably is rich, but nobody really knows because the president owns everything. And uh, then you have Mauritius and Botswana. Not coincidentally, Mauritius and Botswana are also two of the rare true democracies and also two freest economies in sub-Saharan Africa. Between 1966 and 2006, over those four decades, Botswana's economic growth rate per year, on average, was over 7%. That's higher than China's. And because we don't have time to look at Mauritius and Botswana at the same time, how much time have we got? Um, what I want to talk about very briefly is the what I call the Botswanan miracle or Botswana success story, and ask why is it that Botswana has performed so well whilst many other countries have fallen by the wayside. Botswana is Africa's second richest, uh, second um, freest economy and it's been a free market democracy since 1966 when it gained independence from Britain. And this is quite extraordinary because at the same time that Botswana was choosing liberal democracy and free markets, the rest of Africa was embracing Stalinist communism. Now why was that? And some of these reasons are really just conjectures. We don't really know, but I think that it does come to leadership. It does come to um, the to the government in charge and how they perceive their role to be. In many cases, African governments seem to be um, functioning for the benefit of the ruling class, of a small junta of people around the president. In Botswana, uh, it appears that the government from the start had one vision, and that is to improve the lives of the of the rest of the population. Amongst the things that the Botswanans did, I now, I'm now quoting from a from a paper by Scott Bullier, an economist at Bellio College, Kama, who was the president of Botswana, adopted pro market policies on a wide front. His new government promised low taxes, stable taxes to mining companies, liberalized trade, increased personal freedoms, and kept marginal income tax uh, rates lower to deter tax evasion and corruption it is my conjecture that uh, part of the reason why Saretsa Kama embraced uh, free market policies from the start was because he already saw socialism collapsing everywhere else in Africa Um, you will recall that uh, uh, Ghana was the first African country to become independent which I believe was in 1957 I think so. By 1960, it was running a, a fully fledged uh, Marxist state, and by 1966, few months before Botswana became independent, um, the presidency of uh, Kwame Nkrumah uh, was terminated by a uh, by a government uh, by by an army putsch, uh, which sent the country into into a uh, uh, into a spiral of instability and economic collapse from which they are yet to emerge. Um, so a good leader would already see what was happening in, in uh, Ghana and many other places in Africa which embraced socialism and, uh, and government control of the economy and say to himself, well, maybe this is not such a good idea to follow, follow these countries. Um, another thing which uh, Nkama did which was quite unusual was that in many African countries, the new leadership sent the minority uh, populations packing. In uh, Congo, of course, we saw the massacres in 1960. In, uh, in, uh, in uh, Uganda, Idi Amin sent the Asian population packing in 1973, I believe. Um, Kama was different. Kama's, uh, uh, Kama's um, relations, um, or rather I should say maybe his attitude to race, was marked by the fact that he was married to a white woman. And their uh, relationship was rejected by both sides of the racial spectrum. But both black and white uh, people in the region completely rejected this union. But the two, you know, they uh, s- uh, stuck together. Uh, he eventually became president. And his son uh, became president, uh, I believe, in April of this year. And, I mean, the older Kama was, uh, has been dead since 1980. But, uh, but uh, his, uh, his son uh, succeeded to the presidency a few months ago. The point is that he had an appreciation for the need for t- racial toleration um, and, uh, and uh, stability in the country. And that is something that he pursued, I think, very well. Another one of the things that uh, um, President Kama did between 1966 and 1980 was that he kept what, uh, what, uh, what Botswanans call kotlas or um, grassroots democracy going. Whereas in many other countries in Africa, grassroots democracy was eliminated by uh, first the colonialists and then by the national, nationalists, um, Kama embraced the tribal system. And to this day, many of the decisions which are made in uh, Botswana are made on a local level with the tribal chiefs meeting with uh, uh, their folk and deciding what they want to do and really taking decisions on a lowest possible level rather than at the top. And this, of course, um, echoes, in the African context, the vision of the United States by the Founding Fathers. The idea is that if you have a united, centralized government, if you make a mistake at the top, everybody has to suffer. If you make a mistake at the very bottom of the decision-making process, then it's only the community that took that decision that will suffer. The rest can learn from those mistakes. Um, once again, I think the, the example of Botswana shows that um, just as the causes of the problems in Africa are domestically generated, also the um, the uh, the way out of the problems can be domestically generated. I mean, Botswana didn't do this because the West wished so. Uh, The Botswana government did this because they had an understanding that the government is there for the benefit of the people. Okay, lastly, what can the United States do what it should do? Well, there is very little that we can do. Uh, That's axiomatic because, as I said, most of the problems are domestically generated. However, there are things that Western countries do which contribute to problems in Africa, namely trade protectionism and uh, agricultural subsidies. Trade protectionism in a sense that even though most African goods now come to the United States free of tariffs and quotas, some of the things don't. Cotton is, of course, um, uh, cotton, sugar, um, uh, cocoa, and many other things which Africans produce are still subject to American tariffs and quotas. That's silly for two reasons. One, it's harming Africa, but also, B, and more importantly, perhaps, uh, in the American context, it's harming American consumers. Secondly, um, we are talking about uh, subsidies for American farmers, which I believe, according to the latest bill, um, the farm bill will amount to something like $360 billion over the next five years. Now, $350 billion will have to come out of your pockets because you'll have to be taxed um, in order to come up with that money. And also, uh, it will keep uh, food prices in the United States unnecessarily high. Uh, Getting rid of subsidies would uh, remove distortions from the international market and it would allow Africans to compete with American farmers on a more equal level. Lastly, uh, I would say there is a scope for smart sanctions. Uh, I am an opponent of economic sanctions because I don't think they work, uh, but also because I think they cause a lot of harm. But smart sanctions in in, in its travel bans and uh, freezing of assets of African dictators – uh, arms embargoes are very important. And here I'm glad to say the United States had taken a very good lead on, uh, on pushing for arms embargo against Robert Mugabe in, in Zimbabwe. Unfortunately our friends in China and Russia didn't see that way, and they vetoed it at the Security Council, which was really pathetic. But um, the point is that uh, the United States has been at the forefront of fighting uh, in, a, in, a, in an intelligent way, I would say, uh, to promote Uh, freedom uh, amongst the Zimbabwean people and I think it needs to be congratulated for that. Thank you very much.